Hello, my friends. This is Nashville Demystified. I am your host, Alex Steed. Nashville Demystified is a show in which I get to know the city better by talking with the folks who live, work, agitate, and make art here. Today, we talk with Phoebe Hunt, who is just a trip. (laughs) Start to finish, front to back, a total trip. And we will go there momentarily. First, you should know that Nashville Demystified is brought to you by Knack Factory. And Knack Factory is a commercial and creative content production house that has an office here in Nashville. And, uh, you know, if you need some content produced, Nashville uh, Demystified is proud to let you know that Knack Factory will do it. They'll do it. I mean, you know, if it makes sense for what the project is, can't can't say up front for sure that it makes the most sense for you all to work together, but it probably does. You have a, you need to cultivate an audience. Knack Factory is there for you. You need to make a video, get a video produced. Uh, Knack Factory, they're the ones. And also, Nashville Demystified is brought to you by the We Own This Town Network. And the We Own This Town Network is a collection of podcasts made by and for Nashvillians. There are podcasts about art heists. There are podcasts about uh, Chris Gaines, uh, the uh, Garth Brooks alter ego. There are podcasts that are just sort of about music and what's going on uh, in the local scene, the non-country scene. There are podcasts, there are all sorts of podcasts. There are podcasts about Bill and Ted. You know, those guys from the 1980s and the 1990s. And uh, uh, I hear there's a new movie with them coming out soon. Okay, that's enough of that. Oh, uh, before we proceed, you should know that it is highly beneficial to this podcast for you, the listener, to subscribe and like and share and write reviews. Um, ideally, all good. I, I don't even care if they're they're good. If you want to write uh, one that uh, you know takes issue with some things that I said, or maybe one of our guests, uh, <laughs> go for it. A uh, little controversy never hurt anybody, you know. But but really, I mean. If you could just if you could just subscribe or, or, or do whatever one does with podcasts, that's going to be helpful. Uh, you can like us on various social media platforms. I have, I believe I talked about the last time, a TikTok account, and I don't feel uh, bad about it. <laughs> so we're on Instagram. I, as a as a professional working person, am on LinkedIn, and that has nothing to do with this introduction. You know, there is uh, what else is there? There's Twitter, there is uh, Facebook, which is straight up just unequivocal garbage, but there are people there and, and that's how you get people to listen to your uh, your podcast as you go on social media. So I will take all social media traffic <laughs> from the podcast that we can get uh, coming in. So like, subscribe, enjoy, and engage via social media. VB Hunt, VB Hunt. Phoebe is a person who I uh, know of by way of various uh, circles of friends and and sort of overlapping social collectives. Uh, she's someone uh, I've known of for a bit and she is a fiddler and she uh, writes uh, she writes songs she performs songs she is very difficult to to nail down in the best way possible i mean she is not one uh not any one particular thing you know she's like i said she's a fiddler she is she's a singer she's a songwriter she is a yogi herself um she's a visual artist she's putting together a visual album I find it difficult to nail this person down, Phoebe Hunt, to nail her down. And I think that's an incredible thing. 
when someone is hard to nail down. It makes conversations with them extraordinarily adventuresome. <laughs> Adventurous, adventuresome? As this one is, we sort of, we cover a lot of ground. On our website, Phoebe describes herself as a, as mystical indie folk, uh, inner soul exploration. And I think that's right on. I think that that's totally right on. We had, I can say without exaggeration, a blast talking together, talking about everything from her background in Austin to her time in Brooklyn to uh, her time now in Nashville. Talked about her travels, what it's like to put together an album with uh, with uh, one of your heroes who who, who passes tragically and early. Uh, we talk about that a bit here, and um, just many many other things. This is a person who thinks and creates and feels in a big way, and that is definitely uh, shared in this conversation. So thanks so much, Phoebe, for taking the time to talk with us. All right, that's it. That's all you need to hear from me. You can hear the rest by way of our conversation. Uh, without further ado, Phoebe Hunt. Where have you been? Are you just getting... Space. Yeah, I love this place a lot. It's very nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for doing it. I really appreciate it. Chat about music or demystification of music. Demystifying all of the things. How is, how long have you been in how long have you been in Nashville? Uh, we moved here in June of last year. Oh, right on. What so what brought you here? Promise of <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Promise of grandeur, and no, um, we had been living in Brooklyn for five years. And really, we found a really fun community there that we fell in love with. Mm. And then something about getting married and living in a house with five dudes in Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't doing it? Well, I loved it. And we actually did that for like a year and a half or so after we were married. Like, it didn't matter that we were married. But maturity or vision of life and saying it'd be nice to plant roots somewhere that you know, practical. We could buy a house here. It was like still slightly affordable. I'm from Austin, Texas and realized yeah. that in Austin, you know, the market just did this crazy thing where there's no way I could buy a house in Austin at this time. And right. I'm not looking in Brooklyn for a house. So we were like Nashville, the place where we actually could still afford to move into and think about, you know, 20, 30 years down the road and just a house like things. I never thought I'd want like a house right. <laughs> or a husband really, <laughs> but like, and then just something takes over something. And, and then, oh, Oh, it's nice to have some grounded energy in your life yeah, and not live out of a suitcase constantly, <laughs> but be in this place that there's incredible creativity. Mm. We have so many friends. The friend community that we're a part of, we feel like is not really geographically based. It's the same community that lives in Brooklyn that we're friends with in Nashville, that I'm friends with in Austin, Colorado, California, just from years of traveling and making really deep friendships. So we have tons of friends here. We had tons of friends there. Mm. Life can continue semi as it was. It's just now we're in a, from a grounded, rooted place rather than from just from suitcases in a room in Brooklyn. Yeah, that's the. I mean, that's been an interesting thing. Is I am from Portland, Maine, mm-hmm. and that is where I lived for a super long time, on and off for years. And I feel plopped into like friend circles here a lot more readily <laughs> than mm. I did in than I did in Portland. I felt that same way when I was in Brooklyn actually. Mm. And I think maybe a lot of that comes with to some degree with the communal nature of musicians in mm. particular. And that seems to be the people I hang out with the most. But it is a it's a lovely social town for sure. This is and that was this is here. So true, yeah. yeah. And 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 there's also place and space. There's more space here mm-hmm. than in Brooklyn. 
Brooklyn as far as for just nothingness. Which Brooklyn were you living in? What neighborhood? Um, Which Brooklyn? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> it was, we were in Bed-Stuy. Oh yeah, right on. And it was an incredible experience, something I'll never, I'll cherish for the rest of my life. And the, the people that we met are now friends for life. They're our band. They're my brothers. It's a friendship that goes beyond geography and time and space and it's cosmic and I'm yeah. grateful, beyond grateful to know them and that will remain. Yeah, definitely. It's an, I mean, Brooklyn is still absolutely magical. Yeah. It's a, it's a lovely place. And, and now we live eight minutes from the airport instead of <laughs> 45 to an hour, depending on traffic and things like that. Just life is a bit easier. Yeah, it is for sure. And there's an incredible creative energy here. Like Can you describe you. that? <laughs> well, well, thank you. <laughs> like this moment in this, in this place right now, I'm looking and there's this incredible painting with ready whip and a sunset <laughs> and two people eloping or something on the beach. And we are at the, the illustrious studio 615 right now. Yeah. And, and you cool just stuff here. poke into a parking lot in the gravel driveway and you enter into a space that has endless potential for creativity, <laughs> a huge room with white walls that you can create videos and any kind of content you want. And this space right now has, you know, a dressing room feel, but yet very cozy living room environment. Like there's creativity abounds here. Yeah. And the energy that creates that comes from the people that live here and the desire for creating something more and something, you know, diving beneath the surface of what exists into the creative realm. And that comes through music here in this town. And I resonate with that deeply. Mm. So I'm grateful to tap into that channel and be a part of it if I if I'm lucky enough to right on what was your entry to becoming a musician are you lifelong or are you a are you a later entry <laughs> oh yeah that's a great question the entry point was a six you, was it three or 15 six, it was six. <laughs> oh yeah okay there we go perfect yeah yeah and father mm father musical lineage of he tapped into it since he was 10 and a classical guitar player so lineage of parental <laughs> parental lineage and in the f family line kind of vibe are your parents genre conservatives meaning like are, are they no. okay with you not being exactly what they were <laughs> <laughs> no yes my parents are yogis <laughs> oh cool <laughs> they're fine so follow your bliss yeah. do what's in your heart express don't be a musician be a musician in fact don't be a musician because that's really hard yeah. or do but know that it's really hard or whatever right. any creative path can be quote-unquote challenging to the status quo mindset within the capitalistic society we live in so i understand that but i also see that creative lifestyle allows for limitless possibility of expression and experiential understanding of life so it's really fun <laughs> Yeah, being a musician, most like I feel like most people who are not musicians are in communities of musicians. Their assumption about what being a musician is is about being like a performer, right, or being a being sort of in the public space, but the forward facing part, right? Exactly. But being a musician is an inherently anti capitalist, right? <laughs> venture. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> <laughs> No. Um, and it requires deep exploration of the inner self if one is willing to use it for that, which is to me the stake that I'm holding in the ground as far as vision of possibility of what music really can stand for is like the deep excavation of the soul and willingness to tap into the darkest places within ourselves that allow our personal healing and transformation, which allows for humans to interact from a place of grounded healing instead of from wounded pasts. Mm. 
Right. And that's a thing that we're taught to be relatively resistant to. (laughs) (laughs) It could hurt. (laughs) Can I just buy something? Um, (laughs) That's easier. And is that how you, like, do you come at making music that consciously all the time? Or is that just sort of now baked into your being? I think... It coincides with my inner path of journey through yoga and meditation. And it has now become something that I'm able to zoom out on and witness as something that to me is a universal truth among anybody who creates, if they're willing to create from a place where they're releasing their pain, the art that's expressed as a result is a lot deeper and can impact more deeply the person who witnesses or experiences that art. And so now I'm, I don't know if this is new or old, but I have a nonprofit and I've been working with war veterans, immigrants, refugees, teenagers from all around the world and seeing this reveal itself and then studying the revelation of the inherent truth that through creative expression, we find our deepest healing and then allowing that to be a guide within my own artistic expression. So then it becomes a more conscious, but really it's a subconscious exploration anyway. Mm. So even if I'm aware of it, the awareness allows me to be okay with it when I'm weeping while I write a song. But the fact that I'm weeping while I write the song is still subconscious from what I understand. So tell us about the nonprofit and and (laughs) what inspired that. It's called Fuel Our Fire. And it's about fueling the fire of inspiration, um, using music and art as a creative or healing transformational tool. (laughs) And we create multiple programs. It's my sister and I that we created this together. We intersect with people in our lives that we find are doing really profound work. And so then we create partnerships with them and integrate their communities to create five-day transformational music program that serves their community that they're working with. So we just created the nonprofit as a vehicle to be able to create these programs that seem to be popping up in our life, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So you need, you needed a place to do the work that you needed to do. Exactly. <laughs> so we just created a structure around the thing that was like synchronistically arriving within our own experiences. Yeah. And how has that been? What has that revealed? It's, you know, it's changed my life and it's changed my path and it changed my understanding of music and led me to so many different places. The first program spawned from a teacher of mine named Vanessa Stone who had a program in Austin called the Amala Foundation mm. and they had put on a program called the Global Youth Peace Summit uniting teenagers from all around the world to experience humanity by seeing the face of another place like the face of Pakistan, the face of Africa, the face of Congo, the face of revolution, the face of Syria immigrants, you know, Rather than reading in a book about a place and understanding it that way, understanding the human connection and that there's something that happens in this Global Youth Peace Summit that I had never witnessed before. And that was really that facelessness, like where you look at someone and you really are colorblind and you just see the heart and you can connect to someone so deeply just through the lens of the heart that you realize we're all the same and you can't compare human suffering. And that process is such a transformational process for these youth that are involved and for anyone who touches into it, that what I witnessed being revealed on day three or four, because that's the breakthrough and flowering day of transformation, is that art is actually what starts channeling itself through anybody who's going through the process of transformation. So I would watch these 14-year-olds start writing songs that were profound truths and painting amazing murals. And so I just was inspired to want to help create a space for those teenagers to have a voice in the world and for this profound truth, which I call words of truth from the mouths of babes. Mm. I wanted to record it. (laughs) 
so that it could be shared with the world. And so I partnered with that organization said, could I create a music program that follows the Global Youth Peace Summit where we spend a week recording the songs that are written in this transformational experience. And they had really wanted that to happen for about seven years, but everyone kept trying to shove it into the Global Youth Peace Summit itself. And I just knew that the music required its own time and nurturing. So then I kind of became the facilitator of these four full length albums that we've written that have had collaborations from over 60 teenagers from all around the world world. I don't know, we've had 10 to 12 songs on each album. And these songs range in genre from African tribal sounding songs to folk hip hop to Americana. (laughs) I don't know if there's a strictly country vibe in it, but to there's some Latin beats, but it, it comes from all around the world. And the music is a collaboration. So we put these teenagers in groups and it's almost like Iron Chef, like you have one week to write a song and record it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they have to learn the process really of collaborating, which is really the hardest part. Like, I don't like the idea that you just put out there, you know, when when you're touching on the most tender thing, which is your creative idea and you're working together. I felt like that was a tool that teenagers could then take and apply to anything that they would do in their lives, whether they were exploring music or not. They could learn the process of collaboration and that actually spawned from my own band breaking up. Hmm. And me knowing the drama that exists within a band when there's ego involved, you know. And so to me, it became a training ground for later in your life, you're going to be collaborating and you're not always going to know how to have those hard conversations. So maybe we can teach you the art of those hard conversations using music as the tool. And as a result, the byproduct is we have a full length album. Right, right. What have you seen as the result of that? Like what have you do you hear from from these kids who are involved later or what, what is what do you hear after? I'm actually still in touch with a lot of a lot of the teenagers and I, I've just seen such great projects and life paths emerge from each of these young people that I've been able to witness blossom into life, you know, into, as, into adults. And some of them I'm still in conversation with. Obviously, one week, it can change the, their life path, but it's not going to change everything about their life. So right. it's a tools and then the rest of their life, they can use those tools and maybe they will and maybe they won't. But there's at least an experience of understanding how to fully collaborate so you know one of the girls now lives in nashville she's a great songwriter Mm -hmm. and i'm i still you know watch her write her songs and have her journey as how to be a songwriter in nashville and there's a young man in california that i'm a mentor to we have a phone call each month and he's also involved in politics and he sees from a really big perspective and how to channel his music into that and so you know it's a constant process of their own evolutions as human beings but at the same time we've all had this shared experience that's allowed like depth of connection so they know that I see them fully and can trust me as a mentor and stuff like that. I've worked for years at, with youth development programs and I find that like you say I mean it's like it's it's a week it's not necessarily going to change every element of their life but I having been a kid who all I wanted was for some fraction of time for an adult to take me seriously and like to take my vision and ideas seriously I know that that means a lot I mean I think a lot of times just seeing yourself through the eyes of someone who believes in you who's older and has accomplished some things is enough that goes a long way it really does. And that's like the chain of life that I think of. I think of the people that have seen me and my ideas as important in the world and who give me permission to explore all these concepts. And then it's just the chain of life. It's me looking down into the future and saying, 
I see you also. So mm. if I can be a part of that chain link of connection, you know, that's the greatest thing I think we can give each other in this life is the art of witnessing someone else, you know, yeah. really being a silent witness and listening with a deep heart. Yeah. And being like, you can fucking do it. Cause like <laughs> everything in the world is telling you, you can't yeah. and coming in and being like, you, you can, and you should, yeah, and, and all it's, be better for it. And it's important and valid and, you know, think outside the box and the bigger you can get outside the box and your own limitations, the better it will be for humanity and can what you want to do also impact others in a way that serves the greater good. And how do we do that together? Right on. And you, so you're from Austin originally, mm -hmm. you know, there are four music towns as far as uh, I have been informed <laughs> and Nashville is the king, uh, <laughs> of course. whatever it is, the gender agnostic top, atop dominion. Pile, dominion. And there's, <laughs> that's wonderful. There's Austin and there's LA and there's New York. And then at least in Americana and bluegrass, there's a tiny bit of Boston and there's the mountains. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but people seem to frame it in a binary, like there's Nashville and there's Austin. What is it like coming up in one music city and then going to the other <laughs> music city? Yeah, my journey has taken me to all those music yeah, cities to, that you're talking about. <laughs> and I guess there's some creative energy calling and pulling to all those places. When I was first dabbling in Nashville <laughs> as an Austin girl... <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that the jamming in, and I'm coming from playing the fiddle and being part of the fiddle jamming community, yeah. that lens that started my journey in music, I realized that the jams in Nashville happened in houses and the jams in Austin happened at bars and on stages. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And that was the first thing I could yeah. see like as a differentiating factor. Yeah, lots of porches here. <laughs> Yeah, lots of, it, like, you go to someone's house, and that's where, like, the best pickers in Nashville happen to be just at a living room playing tunes, picking around in a fireplace or whatever. And then in Austin, well, I used to go up Tuesday nights to see Eric Hokanen play at the, the Flipnotics, and he was one of the great fiddle players that lived in Austin. All the great fiddle players would go to his show, and he would have everyone up. And so on the stage I was getting to play with you know all my buddies in Austin and it didn't matter that we were on stage or not on stage but that's just it was a more a more and less formal setting for a jam because I realized I, the other difference that I see is that here in Nashville a show is more of a showcase right whereas in Austin a show is just a place to come and hang out on Wednesdays hmm. yeah so people go out in Austin, there's community supporting the music from a very grassroots level in Austin, where like a family comes out and sees your show every Wednesday night and they become your dear friends and the kids, you know, help sell your merch or whatever. And it's just a really informal grassroots feeling. I used to play every Thursday at uh, Waterloo Ice House on 6th and Lamar. And that was just a congregation we'd gather together on Thursdays and drink beers and eat hamburgers. And it was a place to come and hang with the community. Whereas in Nashville, even now, if I'm going to play a show, like I want to invite the industry out and, right, of course. you know, and maybe get a record deal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, and then I want to make sure it's like my band playing our thing that sounds just like our record. Whereas in Austin, like I'll play with whoever on whatever night and I'm just a fiddle player exploring music and having fun. So because there's not as much business in music in, in Austin, which is changing mm -hmm. and that's changing too in Austin. And I'm not, I haven't been there in the last decade as much so i don't as soon as google uh has a record label it's you know <laughs> it's off <laughs> right 
So who knows? I mean, the, but the informal music-centric gatherings here seem to be in houses and a little bit more exclusive to the musicians only are invited, mm-hmm. really, which is fine because it's actually really fun yeah. <laughs> and really deep music is being played and really deep exploration of music is happening here in Nashville. Some of the greatest musicians in the world are hibernating here and doing their practice my husband being one of them, I don't need to toot his horn, but he's practicing and playing all the time and growing exponentially as a musician and watching him really tap into some of the, for lack of a better word, like elite music community that lives here that is profoundly, transformationally, I don't even know how to explain it, like the Bela Fleck, Sam Bush, Tim O'Brien, that echelon, you know, of people that live here. And there's that same... Well, he's in, so your husband is Dominic Leslie, he's in the band Hocktail, who I would... I would say, and I'm, I'm friends with the, the other three in the band and I just, just met him last week, I would say probably in a way that they would not say about themselves that they are, they are the Sam Bushes, Tim O'Briens, et cetera, of the now. And once we look back in 10 years, we're going to be like, holy shit. <laughs> you know? And they're around, they're around doing that. Totally, in my living room. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. I, I feel guilty in a way that y- you just gave the best description of things that I've been looking at that I haven't put to words yet. The idea that it's like, it's all happening in houses, there are showcases, and then the, the converse. I spent a little time in Austin last year and saw a bunch of music there. And what you described is exactly right on to my experience. And I feel a little guilty here that I don't go to shows as much because I'm very fortunate to have a lot of these friends who are geniuses who all play in houses for your entertainment for hours. <laughs> while they're practicing for the showcases <laughs> right it's not a bad thing i don't want to put good versus bad or any of that it's just those are the, the differences that i notice yeah and so <laughs> what music are you making now you said you were in a band right and it is now no longer you had been in a band 10 years up. ago so what is the b- progression of you being you then <laughs> Thanks for asking. (laughs) I'm I'm figuring that one out myself. Um, You know, so that band was called the Belleville Outfit, and that was really in my formative years. And also I was in a band called the Hudson's, and that's Mm. the one that played at the Waterloo Ice House every Thursday. And then the Belleville Outfit happened, and we toured the festival scene and the festival circuit kind of in the Americana bluegrass realm in my early 20s. And then due to miscommunications and misunderstandings, we fell apart, and I started this soul journey of my own and part of that was remaining to be kind of a a side person in different people's bands I played with Ben Soli Mm -hmm. and toured with him on one of his albums Electrified I think was the name of the album for that album tour and he kind of allowed me to see that an artist can do whatever they want as their expression because he's so free in his expression and that's when I went on my journey to India my first one and that was something I had always wanted to do but didn't think I could and then I was like why not do the thing you want to do. It was like I had graduated college and went straight into a band. I had gone elementary school, high school, middle school, high school, college, band, and had had never had any time that was just not accounted for. Right. And so I had this deep longing, like what would happen if I had no idea what was on my schedule tomorrow, you know, and just needed to have a time in my life with no agenda. And that became the next few years. And through that, that band had been introduced to Matt Rawlings, who's a great piano player who is, plays with Lyle Lovett and has currently just produced, you know, Willie Nelson's album that just won a huge Grammys. And that album is amazing. Yeah, the Frank Sinatra. And so Matt Rawlings produced that album. Yeah. And we were introduced to him and he was producing the Belleville Outfit album that never happened. Mm-hmm. 
but he and I had a really great connection and he ended up being kind of like Uncle Matt to me and ended up producing my first EP with me. And so we wrote a lot of the songs that were kind of about the breakup, about the walking away. And I was also leaving a relationship in my life at that time. So it was my Saturn's return, if you will. (laughs) And so Matt helped me through that journey really emotionally and using the music as really a tool for my transformation, which I was unaware of at that time. That just kind of set me on a journey to start kind of a quote-unquote solo career with my own voice. And, and really, I came to understand that singing and emoting and songwriting felt like the thing that felt the most expressive to me. Playing violin is amazing. I love it. I love playing the fiddle. I love exploring fiddle music and using the fiddle within the songs I write. But yet, that was kind of where I found my voice just feels so important for me to connect to more deeply. And it I didn't come to that until I was in my early 20s, like 23 or 24. Like, I really need to explore this and the songwriting thing. So I went to a couple songwriting camps. There was something called Johnny Mercer Foundation puts on a songwriting camp in Chicago. And I applied to go to that as a songwriter. I had like a few songs recorded, the EP that hadn't come out yet. And I just used those as my application to apply to this songwriting experience. And there I met Lori White Cannon, Hmm. who was one of the mentors at that program. And she and I really deeply connected. And she became a friend, mentor, and she lived in Nashville for a really long time. So anytime I would pass through Nashville, I'd always visit Lori. There was this unfolding that began of just my own personal guide into my own songwriting And at that time when I went to India, that's kind of when I fell into understanding that teacher and being invited to the Global Youth Peace Summit and the unfolding of the whole Fuel Our Fire vision and then more consciously using the music and art as a healing therapeutic tool. So for a few years, I really wasn't focused so much on my own music career as much as I was on really getting One Village Music Project off the ground. So I would play house concerts and small gigs just to like fund myself so that I could then go home and create documents and write grant proposals and do whatever I could to make one village music project happen and then it did happen for f- for five years then I had this realization that my dad helped me come to which is like all these projects that you want to do that help the world you'll be able to do them a lot better if you focus on your own music and your own expression and build a platform from which to then share yeah. put the oxygen mask on yourself first yeah. yeah so I was just like depleting depleting myself sure. working so hard for all these programs to start a nonprofit, to and it just it just becomes like a really full-time job really quickly it's the whole thing of philanthropy being really hard work oh, yeah, totally. and so then a few years ago when we moved to New York when Dom and I finally that was the first time we moved in together because we had been long distance for five years throughout all that stuff he was living in Boston and I was living in Austin we decided to live in the same city for the first time in our relationship which we chose New York as a place for that <laughs> and that became for me a I made a decision to allow myself to focus on my own expression (laughs) like more than I ever had in my life. Right. And I kind of let go of the reins of some of the other things. At the same time, the Amala Foundation, who I'd been working with with the One Village Music Project, was going through some transitions. Like the founder left and they were restructuring the organization from within. And so One Village Music Project changed forms and kind of changed hands and I just let that happen. And, you know, things happened where I could really just focus on my own music. And I wanted to go to India again because I had met this great teacher, Kala Ramnath, who's an excellent Indian classical violinist. And so I put the word out to my community in, in New York at the time and said, who wants to go to India and study Indian classical music with me? 
any takers. And, and I had the avenue of Fuel Our Fire and had raised some funds. So I was like, I can sponsor the educational component for us if you can just get yourself there and lodging will be really cheap kind of thing. And there was a group of 10 of us who went to India, Dominic included, and Roy Williams, who's in my band now, and Jared Engel, who plays the bass in the band. So the India trip ended up kind of launching my own creative journey Mm -hmm. back to my own self. And I decided when I got back to New York that I was going to not travel anywhere until I had recorded that album, (laughs) Shanti (laughs) Shana. Because I was like, I just practiced for 10 hours a day for 14 days in a row after doing a Vipassana meditation, which is 10 hours of meditation a day for 10 days in a row. And I'm probably never practiced this much continually in my life. Now's a good time to record. Yeah. And I asked those same guys who had, a lot of the guys who went to, to on the trip to India if they would be willing to be in a band or not necessarily even be in a band, but just record the album. Right. And somehow it was synchronistically also led to Sam Ryder, who was in New York also at the time and was just all in this community. It's this community we were living among that it's more than a band. It's a group of friends who all support each other and record on each other's albums. So after getting back from India, we probably recorded seven albums that next year. Hmm this being one of them and brother Roy who was on the trip also recorded an album and Sam Ryder started writing all these amazing uh, instrumental songs and although I'm not on that album I learned all those songs too and you know we just whatever we could to help each other out came this community where I'll play in your band and you play in my band and it doesn't matter we're just doing what we can to bring this music to life because we supported each other's visions and songs so much we became our own version of the One Village Music Project you know like you incubated yeah yeah and, and brought it all to life. Yeah, it was like working with the teenagers and the project with One Village Music. I, I learned the art of producing an album, the art of really allowing someone else's voice to be fully heard mm-hmm. because the great teacher of mine says you have to give what you want the most. Right. And then all of a sudden in New York, I could apply the same principle to myself and allow my own voice to finally be heard. And I was like, oh, I can just do this for myself. Like, I, you know, when you're facilitating 30 teenagers through the process, like it's <laughs> very delicate. <laughs> but then I'm in the studio with these incredible musicians who are just there to like lift my own voice up. Mm-hmm. I felt like this is heaven. You know, this is, I'm eating candy, like a kid in a candy store. Like just all I have to do is write the song and play it. Like that's amazing. What, why do you think it takes us and I know so many people who are either going through or have been in the situation that you you described in one way or another, where it takes us so long to give ourselves permission to honor our own voice. I don't know. A mixture between the thought that giving is so important, which it is, and serving others in the world, and a humility. I think there's a lot of humility involved in that, where you say, like, I want to help someone else. And then you have to come to a place where you understand that if I'm not helping myself, I'm not able to help anyone else as deeply. So the moment I can point that same energy inward, then the service that I'll be able to provide for humanity will be will come from a deeper well. Right. And so I had to kind of come to that understanding. And maybe that's an understanding that other people have to come to also, that there's almost a false humility about helping everyone else without helping yourself because it looks good or something. Other people see me helping all these other people. So then they think I'm a great person because I'm helping so many other people. But if you're not really allowing yourself to express, then you're muting your own light. Yeah. 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 Like, did you have an identity wrapped in being a primarily a fiddle player that you had to undo? Totally. <laughs> and well, I know and the, a lot of fiddle players. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. It seems to be an ongoing struggle. Yeah, and you spoke to Maya DeVitri yesterday. I talked to Maya. I obviously know Carolyn well, and, and I know Brittany. And, you know, people go through journeys with regard to how they identify with the instrument they're primarily known for. Totally. Yeah, that's true. I, I'll expound on it for a moment, just from my own experience. Entering the sphere of performing on a stage as like a side girl who can play fiddle and sing harmonies, which is cute. I don't know. Yeah, there's a mixture between you putting yourself in a box and then also the world putting you in a box. You know, I'm sure I put myself in the box plenty, but the perception also was even from the people I was playing music with, like my own band members, when I expressed like, what if I wrote a song too? Like in one of the bands, it was like... I don't know, we already got two songwriters in this band. Like, there's not really room for you to right. also be a songwriter in this band. And I was like, oh, okay. They they really wanted me to stay where I was. They liked me coming in and singing a third part and playing the fiddle, but they didn't like the idea of me also having a song because then they'd have less of their songs in the set. Right, right, right. <laughs> so it was somehow a threat for them if I wanted to sing a song that I wrote myself, which felt really bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, it felt like maybe I'm not good enough. Like maybe I'm not supposed to write songs, you know. But then also it was kind of like, screw that. Like, I'll just move on. Like, you don't get me at all if you if I can't have me fully, you know. Yeah. And so it, there's a mixture between like a love relationship and a band relationship where your band sees you in a certain role. And if you can't stay in the role they see you as, then there's a threat or something. That's how I felt that pattern a few times in my life and then there's a judgment when you do decide to go and do your own music like oh she quit our band to go solo like it's a bad thing <laughs> like okay I mean all I wanted to do was play my songs and I couldn't do them here and I couldn't do them there so I got to find a place to do it which means I have to do all the work of finding the people that are willing to play my songs and support that and that's a journey and as a fiddle player I do feel like my role is to support the song so whatever is being played I want the person who's singing and writing and playing to feel supported and the violin can weave between their words and elevate their music and add intricacies of color to the to the song that they've written and add texture and layers to what they've created to really bring it to a new place and it actually took me a while to find other musicians that could do the same for me yeah like I played with a lot of different people throughout my exploration time and I would gravitate towards other songwriters because we had like a songwriting bond, but somehow the musicianship that I was finding wasn't as developed as a place where then the music could really support my songs in the way that I felt like I was supporting someone else. So the move to Brooklyn and really the move to really being a partner with Dominic Leslie, my husband, who's such an incredible musician, and he does that with people. When he plays his mandolin, he's supporting whatever's happening at such a high level. It's almost as if you can't hear him. He's so good. Mm. He's not there to ask for any of the attention except for just to support and honor the music. And when I realized that if I wanted to play with him in my band, then I needed to play with musicians that he wanted to play with. That was a breaking point for me because I realized that the musicians at the level, at his level, that he wanted to play with all had that quality in common. And so all of a sudden, I was lucky enough to be put in a circle where all the musicians were able to not only support and honor my music that way, but then also create and support each other's music. So I realized that was what I was looking for. I was looking for a group of musicians that had such high musicality that they could do that they could do the thing that I like to do for other people for me (laughs) yeah if that makes sense no it does absolutely yeah what is what is next for you Uh, 
Sorry to talk so much. No, it's totally okay. <laughs> That's why we're here. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. What's next for me? Well, I have a new album coming out. Right on. And since moving to Nashville, my vision around music has been to add an element to the music and the layer of music. So I'm making a visual album. Hmm. So I worked with a great videographer here this whole year to record a series of videos for every single one of the songs. So you can think of it like... I recorded the album, mixed the songs, worked with a great mixing engineer, mastered the songs, and then it's like making a new album of the videos. So then I've been spending all this time, energy and money, making a music video for each song because I felt like the best way to really communicate to people in the day and age that we live in is through visual video, especially with all the technology we have. Yeah. And so I've been really like working on this visual album. And we just released the second video, which is called November this month. And we have a holiday single coming up next month called December again and there'll be one in January called Some Things Change and one in February that's called Take My Love and one in March and then the whole album comes out in April. Oh excellent. And it's called Neither One of Us Is Wrong and I wrote it with the album title song with Laurie White Cannon yeah. just before she passed. Mm. Just before she was diagnosed with terminal illness. Right. Wow. Like two weeks before she got the diagnosis, we wrote this song, Neither One of Us Is Wrong. And I was going to ask her to produce the album, but I couldn't figure out the logistics of either getting her to New York or the whole band to Nashville. Mm -hmm. So we just wrote a song together. And that song ended up being the title song. And it ended up being right before she passed. Oh, it's super special because she was a teacher of yours. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear of her passing. Yeah. But I'm glad that you had that. Totally. She's been part of this journey. I feel her spirit like she's cheering me on and cheering this whole thing on because the thought of neither one of us is wrong has been an exploration to the liminal space. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I moved to Nashville and took the year off of touring and did a yoga teacher training, Reiki energy healing work. I just did my second Vipassana 10-day silent meditation retreat. I'm doing a transformational facilitation training right now also. I've been pouring a lot more energy back into Fuel Our Fire and that's been emerging in a really weird way. Like last weekend I was flown out to California by Deepak Chopra's team to be the music at Deepak's event and I'm, I'm just really exploring living life from a place of non-grasping. Yeah. And the music is that because, you know, in a yin and a yang, there's the black and the white and a thin line in the middle. And that's where transformation occurs, hmm. is that thin space where you can change from black into white or white into black. And I felt like by creating a visual element to the music, I could really highlight that liminal space. And by watching a video, you get so many subconscious triggers in the mind that can open more pathways. So matching the music to the video is also exploring that liminal space, the space in between you and me, the space in between like my fingers when they touch or when I touch a, this table or chair, which may or may not actually exist in the realm of matter. That's the kind of exploration I'm having right now. And that's honored in one way or another by sort of the, the name of this album. Totally. Uh, and that's where you're at right now. Just totally. playing music at Deepak's events and exploring <laughs> liminal space. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. And the idea that just came into my mind today. This is, is why I moved to Nashville, just so you know, just so I could have these conversations. 
<laughs> I can feel it at home. And as I say about Maine, we kill witches. That orig- that's our original sin is, is killing people who think differently. And so uh, coming to a place where a bunch of artists hang out, play music, talk about liminal space, and uh, explore inner possibility. That's why I came. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I'm sorry to interrupt. No, it's all good. I Thanks have a song called this. Woman on Fire. Oh, wow. Which that. Is honors that time. Well, I didn't realize it because I wasn't consciously aware that the music that was coming through me was part of my own healing journey when I wrote the song. Mm. But now that I am, I realize that the song was written about past lives of my own. I wrote the song with Lori also, White Cannon, right after I got back from my first India trip. And she helped me bring it to life because she was like, oh, you're a woman on fire and all these things. But then recently while I was playing it, I re-recorded it through this string of synchronicity that led me to a recording studio and they asked me to play any song and I my whole band was not available, so I did it by myself, just me and my fiddle singing, John Hartford style. Right on. And the first song I played was called Woman on Fire, and I just did a whole different version than I'd ever done before. And in that moment, while I was playing it in the studio, I realized that it was honoring all the women who've been burned at the stake for having a voice, mm. including myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here you are. This is amazing. Here you are writing songs in Nashville. Yeah. <laughs> Next, next time I ask the question, what's next? It could be like, what is the next life? That is the <laughs> yeah, the next as an author. Yeah. I just started writing my first book. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Exploring the intersection between the creative expression and a person's own healing. Do you have more that you can or want to say about that? Or are you, is that still in process? I think it's going to be called Beneath the Surface of a Song. Hmm. So, yeah, I'd love to share with you a little bit from off mic because sure. I want space for the ideas to blossom and bloom without being encapsulated by, <laughs> by words. By expectation. An expectation. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in. And uh, I'm stoked for you. Thanks, brother. This is really exciting. <laughs> this is really exciting. I look forward to both listening to and watching what comes out over the next handful of months. Thanks, man. And I'm so grateful for this this intersection and and your willingness to hold space for creatives and artists to share so deeply and asking such wonderful questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening to Natural Demystified. I am your host, again, Alex Steed. Thank you to Michael Eads for producing, uh, doing all the post-production stuff on this episode. Um, uh, Michael's uh, podcast network is called We Own This Town. Uh, that's how how and why I appear in your ears is because of that network. Again, you know, like, subscribe, do all the things. I appreciate you tuning in. I can't believe people listen to this. <laughs> I appreciate it every time. Thank you all so much. We will talk soon.